Thank you, Mike. Um, some people have uh, ministries in the bridge, and some people have ministries outside of the bridge. And uh, that's a neat opportunity where Mike has an opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ. And Mike has actually led several prisoners to faith in Christ. And um, he can be pretty humble about it, but he's had a big impact right here in Eau Claire, uh, down at the county jail. And um, that's kind of a significant as we think about um, our passage today. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And one, you're going to need a Bible. And bridge, if there are any bridge kids still in the room, bridge kids are dismissed. Looks like bridge kids have pretty much made their way. Okay, we need, uh, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. I'm glad to pass one out. The ushers have be glad to bring you one. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And can anybody tell me what page that is on in the, in the bridge Bible? 827. Thank you very much. So if you get a bridge Bible, one the, the paperback they're handing out, it's page 827, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Thomas Jefferson was vice president of the United States from 1797 to 1801. One day, Jefferson walked into a, the largest hotel in Baltimore. He had a very long day. He was dressed as a farmer. The manager of the hotel saw this farmer and would not allow him to have a room at the largest hotel in Baltimore because he felt that this farmer would discredit the clientele at the hotel. So Jefferson uh, left the hotel, went on, found lodging elsewhere. Later, the same night, the hotel manager discovered that he had just refused the vice president of the United States a room in his hotel. So he sent a messenger and said, uh, I'm very sorry, uh, Mr. Jefferson, please come back. Your room is on us. I don't think he used quite those words. Jefferson sent a message back through that messenger. I, he said, tell him I've already engaged a room. I value his good attentions, but if you don't have a room... For a dirty farmer, you don't have a room for the vice president of the United States. The hotel hotel manager mistook the vice president of the United States for a lowly farmer in his mind because of his appearance. The same thing happened to Jesus Christ. People didn't know who he was. They saw him as an everyday, lowly person uh, on the totem pole. Um, They didn't understand who Jesus Christ was and is, that he is the Son of God. He was born to a humble Jewish family. His dad was a carpenter. He did not have a formal education. He did not have social status. He didn't look like a savior of the world when he was crucified on the cross. He said many things that have come true. He said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He said he would rise again on the third day after his death. He said his followers would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria And here we are 2,000 years later, gathered together because we want to hear about him still wanting to be 
witnesses, just like Mike. He said uh, he would come again when it was least expected, and his life and death have changed the very course of history. So one question I have today is, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? Because the answer to that question makes all the difference in the world for your life. What do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? I love the way C.S. Lewis posed it. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's a liar. He wasn't telling the truth. And he sought to deceive people. Or he was a lunatic. He was a little crazy. He was off a few clicks. You know, didn't really get what reality was. Or he is Lord. He is who he says he was. Um, When Jesus came to the earth in the first century, it was announced as good news. Good news was proclaimed at his birth. And uh, we're going to talk today about the, what are the implications of that good news? You know, one of the words for good news is gospel. And uh, what are the implications of the gospel? That's our question. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this good news in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And he reminds us of some of the implications. So look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And the scripture says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So if you want to follow on your outlines, you have an outline in your program. Um, The first thing from verse 11, the gospel offers salvation to all people. The gospel or the good news offers salvation to all people. Now let's see how Paul develops that. In verse 11, he says, the grace of God has appeared. That offers salvation to all people. The grace of God literally means unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor appeared. Um, It was made visible. This grace came to light where there was darkness. Now let's develop that a little little more specifically. Uh, Be on your outline. The grace of God to bring salvation refers to the gift of God's Son. It's really a big picture here. Uh, the grace of God, God's favor that brings salvation refers to the gift of God's son. Paul is looking back now as to what has just happened on earth. And something amazing has happened. God's son came to the earth and lived. And he died And he went to heaven. In theology, we call it the incarnation of Christ. It's about God in the flesh. In Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 14, in describing his birth, it would be a virgin birth, and he would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. God in the flesh. Um, 
John 3.16. This is the grace that brings salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son. That's it. That's God's favor. The grace that brings salvation. God sent his son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's good news. Um, This appearing refers to the whole lifespan of Jesus, his birth, his life, his public ministry for three years, his death on the cross, his resurrection, um, signifying victory over sin and death and the evil one. And his ascension into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That's uh, this grace of God that brings salvation. Uh, this grace was the, an offer of salvation. God offering himself to, to the entire world that whoever makes no difference, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, which leads us right to the next point. This grace is offered to all people. This grace is offered to all people. Now, one of the reasons this is really a big deal is because in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Malachi, a period of history where God's favor was focused on the nation Israel and the Jewish people. And through them, um, God gave the word of God, the Old Testament, And through them, he gave a promise of a savior, the Messiah, God's son. That promise came. And uh, there were many promises given. God would would come a first time and God would come again. And um, this was for all people. Now, what, what is really unique is what happened when God sent his son. He didn't do it just for one nation or one group of people. When God sent his son... The offer of salvation was for all people. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles being everybody who's not a Jew. That's me. I'm a Gentile. And uh, the offer is to every nation, every people group under the sun. Uh, Next, this grace is good news. It is good news. And first of all, we need to understand, why is it so good? Why is it so good? Why is the good news so good? Because there's some bad news that comes first that we have to understand. The people in the Old Testament understood this. The the people who came to this view of God and what God is like, they understood things like sin, that there were things that pleased God and there were things that displeased God. And so there was a big assumption for them. But that's not quite so true in our culture. People don't come with much background sometimes about these things. And uh, let me just make some reminders about why this is such good news. First, the bad news, Romans 3.23. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is also consistent with the Old Testament teaching. All have sinned. Sin is simply uh, missing God's standard, falling short of the glory of God, falling short of God's standards, things that he's already communicated regarding right and wrong. So a sin is just missing the mark. It means I'm not perfect. And uh, also the application is to every person, every person ever born except one, and his name was Jesus. 
and every person that will be born. And it's an attitude or an action that uh, misses the mark. So if you have ever lied one time, uh, you know about sin. Uh, If you have ever cheated one time, if you've ever stolen anything one time, you know about sin. Um, If you ever uh, coveted material possessions, you understand about sin. If you've ever spoken hurtful words in anger, you know, you, you know about sin. And so one of the things it's the truth is all of us have sinned and that's something that every person needs to come to grips with. So do you see that as to being true about you? Uh, the bad news continues before we get to the good news. Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death. The good news is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death. That's bad news. There are consequences. Wages are what we earn. They're about our earnings, Wages are consequences uh, of our sin. And that consequence, the outcome, is death. It's not just physical death here. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death. And death is about separation. So in physical death, the body and the soul separate. The soul is eternal. And the body is physical and it decays in the ground. Spiritual death is much more. It is eternal separation from God where the soul and the spirit are separated from God uh, for an eternity. And Jesus called it hell. So that's the bad news. Left to ourselves, we have to experience, we have to pay for our own sins. We have to to accept the consequences, consequences, which is death, eternal death. Um, And now for the good news, Romans 5.8. Some of you notice this is a Romans road. You're just tracing the story through Romans about what God did through his son. Uh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love. It's because of God's love. It was a sacrificial love because he loved you, because he loved me, because he loves all people. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died. That's the good news. He died in our place. He was our substitute. In theology, we call it the substitutionary atonement. He stood in. I deserve the death. He took my death. I think of a story I read years ago um, about two Native American kids playing in the desert, New Mexico, and um, this little girl was bitten by a rattlesnake. Her older brother uh, fortunately saw what happened, was very quick, and he gave her two incisions where the bite was and then quickly sucked out the venom, and she lived. But he died because he had a wound in his mouth and didn't realize it, and the poison went into his system. Very simply, he took what was causing her death on himself so that she could live. Now, it was an accident. Sad story that he would die. But in our case, when it comes to Jesus, he knew what he was doing. And he went to the cross and he took on our sin penalty. And sometimes that's a hard one to understand. He took on our sin penalty onto himself. He took the blow 
for us. He took what would cause our death on himself, and he died. Now, who he is is going to make all the difference when it comes to the significance of that, that Jesus would die for us. But he was our substitute. I deserve the death, but he took my death. Romans 10, 9, and 10 simply tell us what we're responsible for. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess our, uh, your faith and are saved. We respond to God's message, the good news, that Jesus died for me by responding in faith, by believing what God has said about his son, by trusting in Jesus. Profession, speaking about it, is just a fruit of what's happened in our heart. It's by faith. Um, I love Acts 16, 31. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's about that simple. Believe who Jesus is, what he's done for you and me. He died on the cross. It's by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, just a reminder, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And just, uh, just a reminder here, it's not about doing good. I could never do enough good things to be accepted by God. I could never do enough to be saved. I would never, never, never deserve it. It's only by grace. It's only God's unmerited favor, a gift Jesus took my place, and he says, I've paid it all. Now it's yours. I want you to trust me. I want you to place your faith in me. That is the good news. Secondly, the gospel changes my approach to life every day. The gospel, this good news, this grace that brings me salvation, changes my approach to life every day. Uh, I've told my story uh, several, on several different occasions, but when I placed my faith in Jesus way back before the flood, uh, before, just after the earth hardened. That's my attempt at humor. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, my life took, you could ask Sue, my life took a major turn. I was going in one direction. I was very self-focused and selfish and all about me and m- making me happy and everybody around me making me happy. And then I m- encountered Jesus and he turned my course around to a new course. And one of the, the Bible calls that repentance. But he put me on a new path. And that's, those are implications of the gospel. Those are implications of the grace that brings salvation. So let's look at verses 12 and 13 um, in Titus chapter 2. Uh, first of all, verse 12, it teaches us, that is the grace that brings us salvation, it teaches us to say, no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So it teaches us to say no to certain things. It teaches us to say no. Sometimes we have to say no to choices that we have before us. And it teaches us to say first no to ungodliness. And and this is just kind of a general catch-all concept here. It means saying no to things that dishonor God. No uh, to things that are irreverent toward uh, God. It's saying no to living as if God does not exist. Um, Living as if God's values and instructions don't matter. 
living as if what I think personally carries greater weight than what God has already said. That's what it means. Um, That's a reference to ungodliness. The second thing Paul mentions here is worldly passions, or we might say worldly desires. And passions or desires are God-given and normal and healthy. That you have, that you have uh, a desire for food, a desire for sex, a desire for comfort, a desire to be loved, a desire to be accepted. You know what? Those are good things. But they can be misused and abused. And, and God has given us guidelines and boundaries. And um, when, they, uh, when, they, when, when they go off course... They become uh, worldly and they and they begin to dishonor God. Uh, for example, desire for sex is good. God has designed how this how sexual behavior is carried out in a God honoring way through marriage. And God has outlined how sexual behavior can dishonor Him as well, and um, that's what it means regarding worldly passions. Also in verse 12, uh, it teaches us to pursue certain lifestyle choices. The grace that brings salvation teaches us to pursue certain lifestyle choices. And and he says in verse 12, and also to live self-controlled. The first two are negative. These are positive. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There again, it's kind of a, a broad category. And it's kind of a picture of a conversion of headed in one direction and going now in a new direction and to be careful about not turning back. And he says first that we need to live self-controlled. And these three words, self-controlled, upright, and godly, self-controlled is about an inward focus, upright is about an outward focus, and um, godly is about an upward focus. First, self-controlled. To be self-controlled speaks of a discipline, of having a balance. It's also described as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is a, an outgrowth. If I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, then I can have true self-control where the Lord is in control. And it speaks of uh, having a discipline, having a mastery over my own appetites and desires. And I never said being perfect, but I can have self-control. Also to live upright. And I said that was outward. It's how I live before others. To be upright, to live righteously. What's that about? It's about living honestly. Um, it's about having integrity. It's about following through. It's about being trustworthy. It's about being fair in my dealings with people. It's about being just. It's about caring for the just. That's what it means to be upright. He also says, thirdly, to live godly lives. That's the upward focus. How do I live before God? Living in a way that honors God. Living in a way that uh, chooses God's value and his, uh, his instructions. Living in a way that puts God's kingdom first. Puts God's priorities first. That's what Paul means by living a godly life. Thirdly here, verse 13, it teaches us to, to wait. It teaches us to wait for him. Um, 
in verse 13, the apostle writes that we're going to be, um, we're going to leave certain things behind, ungodliness and worldly passions. We're going to pursue self-control to be upright and godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, verse 13, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. We are in a time of waiting. God's people are in a time of waiting, waiting for God. By the way, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for God to do for you? What are you trusting God to do? What have you asked God to do? Are you seeking direction? Are you seeking answers? God's people are to wait on him. And sometimes what we do is we seek to um, manipulate and play God's hand out or pick a way that we want. We, we head in a direction and then we ask God to bless it without waiting. And um, grace that comes with salvation teaches us to wait. This whole thing about grace that brings salvation is personified. It teaches us. These are implications of the gospel. It teaches us patience, perseverance, perseverance and long-suffering. Jesus came the first time in the first century. We call it Advent sometimes, right? You know, as Christmas season approaches, we call that the Advent season. It means the coming, His coming. Jesus appeared the first time. Jesus said he would come again. First time he came to bring salvation. When he comes again, he says he's coming in judgment. And uh, this last summer, we call that Advent 2.0, his second coming. He's coming again. Jesus will appear. Right now, we're waiting. We're waiting for the blessed hope. That's a, a, The blessed hope is a description of his coming. Notice this. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Appearing goes back to verse 11. He appeared the first time, the first century. He's going to appear again. Um, it's, it's a picture of light coming to darkness. And if you know Revelation 19, there's going to be a great light in heaven when he returns. I love the description the Apostle Paul gives here. He says, the glorious appearing of who? Our great God and Savior. Who's he referring to? Jesus, our great God. Sometimes people go to church all their lives and they miss a really crucial thing. Jesus is God. That's going to make all the difference when he pays for my sin penalty. When you think about this, how valuable is the life of God? And the answer to that question is his life is infinitely valuable infinitely there's no limit to hit the value of his life how big is the sin penalty if you take the sin penalty of the entire world you know if we just tried to add up the sin penalty in this room you know you can just see the calculator just keep click, clicking off clicking off clicking off the how big is the debt you know how big is the debt of every person in the u.s and every person in the world and every person every ever born and the people who aren't born yet and it's just going to click off and click off. The, p- the point is, at the end, it's a finite value. Finite value. Paid for with an infinite price. And it's covered. The sin penalty is big. It's covered. Paid in full. 
Um, so Jesus is going to appear, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're to wait. We're to wait until he comes. And we're living right, living right now to wait, watching for him, living in a way that honors him so that when he comes, we'll be ready. This whole concept of waiting is very important in the Bible. In Psalm 27, verse 14, the scripture says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. So whatever you're facing right now, this is really good advice. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Wait for God's answer. Wait for God's guidance. Wait for God's provision. He's going to come through. We need to let him be in the driver's seat. And wait, trust him. Psalm 30, verses 3 through 5, Old Testament again. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Sounds a whole lot like the Apostle Paul. Verse 5, I wait for the... This is about a thousand years before Paul wrote, by the way. And verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits And in his word, I put my hope. Are you waiting? Can you put your hope in God's word and trust the promises he's made to you about seeking him first and him providing for you? About you praying and him answering. About you trusting him with everything and he will bring you guidance. Proverbs 3, uh, 5 and 6. And then Isaiah uh, 30, verse 18 School passage, 8th century B.C., yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Do you believe that? The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He wants to be gracious. He wants to give you his favor. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. God will show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him, Not for those who run ahead and figure out the, the, their own way of doing things, but those who wait. Uh, blessed are all who wait for him. I like being blessed every chance I get. Um, I like to experience God's provision. I like to experience his favor, what he wants to provide for me. And blessed... Uh, uh, another way to say that is, oh, the happiness. This is about an experience right here, not just sort of an intellectual thought. It's an experience of being blessed, blessed by God so that you know it. And the appropriate response to knowing you're blessed is saying, thank you, God. Thank you. You know, we made a reference to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is just worship when you say, thank you, God, for what you've given to me. Thank you for what you provided for me giving thanks in all circumstances. God is still in control, even if my circumstances are a bit rocky. He's still in control, even if I don't have everything that I want. He did promise everything that I need. Okay, verse uh, 14. This is number three. The gospel is to be lived out by doing good for others. We're talking about implications of the gospel. The gospel is to be lived out. The grace that brings salvation is to be lived out by doing good for others. And verse 14 says, uh, Jesus who gave himself, I'm inserting Jesus, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people 
that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And the first thing is, Jesus gave his life as a payment uh, for our sin. He gave his life as a payment for our sin. Theologically, we call that redemption. It's not a big word there, redemption. It just means the price paid. What was the price? Jesus' life, his life for your life. There's an exchange. He died for you. Jesus gave his life. That's all Paul is pointing out here. He gave his life as a payment. Um, And once in a while, I think it's just good to stop and think. Think about your life right now. Think about your own failures, your own sin, okay? What are some of those top things? I'm not asking you to answer out loud. What are some of those top things that you would be totally embarrassed to share with the rest of the room? Here's the cool thing. Jesus paid for it. He paid it all. His life was a ransom. His life provided redemption for you. The appropriate response is to trust him, is to thank him. Secondly, God's purpose for redemption is to purify us as a people for his own. God's purpose for redemption. The reason he did it, the reason he sent his son is to purify us as a people for his own. God wanted a people to be his own. Special, favored. You. God wants us to be a people for his own. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why redemption. Um, And this is not in, in verse Uh, 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from wickedness, to purify for himself a people that is very own. He didn't do this for a bunch of people or a bunch of individuals. He did it so that there would be a group of people, not just a bunch scattered all around of nice folks who got saved from the penalty of their sin and forgiven. He wanted it to be a group, a people of his own We call it the church or the body of Christ. Um, He sent Jesus so that we could be spiritually clean. Uh, Another way we've talked about this, it means to be sanctified. It's one of those Bible words. It means to be set apart for him. Now I'm useful. You know, when Mike shared his story, he said he realized that grace was given to him and now he could be used by God. And so he would go serve and he chose to serve in in a jail ministry, a way to be used set apart to serve God. And we are set apart to serve God as Christ followers, to be God's very own people. Now, think of the impact. This is where we're going here. Think of the impact. Every person in the room, a people purified by God and for God. We're all set apart. We're all ready to serve. We're all ready to be ambassadors for Christ. We're, we're all ready to do whatever he says. Think of the impact we could have in our world, in our community. Think of the people that could learn about Jesus. If we were as a group, totally right with God, ready to walk with him. That's the desire of Jesus' heart. The Apostle Paul speaks of redemption in this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We've looked at this passage many times, but here's what I want you to see. He says, verse 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? He's, he's reminding us that when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and resides there. 
Don't you know that, he says, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. That's what redemption is. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus died for you. You're not your own. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Think of the implications. The entire church honored God with their bodies. And the impact we would have in our world, in our culture. These are the implications of the gospel. Um, Romans 6, 13 and 14. Similar passage, Romans 6, 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. There's a choice. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And that's, a, that's a, just a really practical way to think about this. I think about who I am. His body was given for my body. This body right now belongs to God. He purchased it. And God wants me to reflect about this and then say, okay, God, here I am. I'm yours. My fingers, my head, my ears, my toes, every part, my mind, I'm giving them to you. I want them to be instruments of righteousness. I want them to be used for you. I want to serve you with everything that I am. Not just parts where part of me serves and part of me does this other little thing. It's um, offering myself to God. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master, says Paul, because you are not under the law, but what? Under grace, God's favor. That's how we got started in verse 11, Titus chapter 2. The grace that brings salvation. We're under that grace favor of God so that we might live for him so that we can have success. And we come now to the last part. Uh, This is C on your outline. The desire of God's heart is for us to be eager to do what is good. God wants us to be eager to do good. He wants us to be enthusiastic about being good. He wants us to be passionate about doing good things, good works, good deeds. Hebrews 13 and 15 and 16, the writer of Hebrews says this, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer up God to God a sacrifice of praise. So when you praise God, it's worship. When you praise God with singing, it's worship. When you praise God in your conversation with people, it's worship. When you talk to God alone and you praise him, it's worship. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name, whose name? Jesus's verse 16, and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. God sees good works as sacrifices to him. God sees generosity as sacrifices to him. And God is looking for a group of people who are eager to do what is good. James 1 27. This is what James says. Religion that God, our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's really practical stuff. What God values in, in followers of Christ are those people who look after orphans and widows as well as those who keep, keep themselves from being polluted or stained by the world. Now, we're not, just let me remind you, this is not how you get to heaven. This is those, for those people who are going to heaven already. I don't serve widows and orphans so that I can get to heaven. I serve widows and orphans because now I'm a child of God, my sins are forgiven, and now I want to please Him. There's a big difference because 
Salvation is a gift. Um, a few years back, Sue and I uh, just evaluating our own lives and realized, you know, we're really failing in the area of orphans and widows. There's a lot of ways you can serve orphans and widows. You can serve orphans and widows in our own community. Um, in the last several years, the AIDS crisis has been a monster in our world. And um, people, parents dying, leaving orphans. A lot of you support kids that have become orphans. That is an awesome ministry. That's one way you can uh, help orphans. Um, we found that with World Vision, they have a fund for orphans and widows. And I said, that's one I want to support. And all I'm saying is it's just an example of one of the ways that you could do something like that. And I'm sure many of you are doing some really good things in serving uh, in these areas. Um, James 2.14 through 17, another passage. This is James. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, James is not teaching to be saved. You do faith, you believe in Jesus, and you do good works, and together they make up what you need for salvation. No, he's not teaching that. He's just saying, your faith needs to be lived out. Your faith should bear fruit so that you're meeting needs. And he's saying it's kind of worthless if you say you're a Christian, you say you have faith, and then you let needs right around you go totally unmet. And, um, you know, we have, we have homeless people right here in, in Eau Claire. And one of the cool things we did last year, there, last year there were 273 homeless students in the Eau Claire School District. And by homeless, that meant a lot of different things. It meant some, sometimes they were living in cars, sometimes they were sleeping in a friend's house, but they just n- never had their own place to go to. And one of the cool things the bridge did last year is we helped provide winter coats. Some of you were involved in that. And that was really cool, really practical way to help people right here. You know what? God cares about those things, and God notices those things. And it's part of what it means to live out your faith as a Christian. And we're going to do that again. And we'll let you know when, that's, when we have more information about our next steps with that. But just be watching for that. Um, Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine. This is Jesus. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus told his disciples that they were the light of the world. He was the light of the world. He came to shine in darkness, to show people what God is like and how, uh, how God thinks and how, what, what is important to God. And now Jesus is telling his followers, they, they are the light of the, word, light of the world and they are to let their light shine so that other people can watch them and see what God is like and to understand more about God and to understand more about God's love and to be attracted to Jesus Christ so that one day they place their faith in Christ and one day they become true worshipers. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. God is searching for true worshipers so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. That was an evangelistic strategy of Jesus to do good in our world so that people, people would understand who God is. 
we do that with our growth groups. That's one of the things we're, we're working to uh, implement in the DNA of the bridge. Uh, a lot of you have served in our growth groups and done outreaches. We do outreaches not because we want people to come to the bridge. We want people to be attracted to Jesus. And um, as I look at some of the outreaches that we do, um, we've, had, we've had a lot of different outreaches. Uh, one of our growth groups just went to Dove Healthcare to spend an evening serving people there. Um, this Tuesday night, there are going to be two or three groups come together to serve at a Thanksgiving feast at the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, we've, we served at the Boys and Girls Club last year. This December, um, we have an opportunity to volunteer with a gift, ex, uh, gift giving at the Boys and Girls Club. And there's going to be a sign-up out this morning if you want to get involved in that. Um, but we want outreach to be a part of our growth group model. We, ju- we know we're just taking baby steps. We don't want to just, you know, we do a little bit of serving outside. We want it to become a, who we are. And God is going to use some of you to come up with some really big ideas for the bridge in the days ahead so we can have bigger impact in our community. As we grow, as we multiply, we want to have a big impact. We just don't want people to come to church. We want people to be attracted to Jesus. Um, Hebrews 13 says, verse 3 says, Remember those in prison. Uh, if you, as if you were a fellow prisoner. And that's one of those things that Mike Minner is doing. A lot of you are doing ministry outside of the bridge. It's very important. You are an ambassador for Jesus. I want to close with Philippians one uh, twenty-seven. Whatever happens, the Apostle Paul writes, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What are the implications of the gospel? What are the implications of the grace that brings salvation, that we're going to live a certain lifestyle? He says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, as one, as a church, as a body of Christ, as one, as a unity. Imagine what God would do with us if we are a people purified as his own possession, his own people, eager to do good. Imagine the impact we can have uh, for him in our community, standing as one, striving together, living out our faith. It's going to be putting a lot of things aside and in submission to the Lordship of Christ. So I asked the question earlier, um, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? Is he a liar? Is he Lord? Do you think he was crazy? If he's Lord, everything changes. And what kind of people do we want to be? Because Jesus is Lord. Let's stand and pray. Father, we pause before you and we give you thanks for sending your son. Thanks for the grace that brings salvation. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that Jesus died for us, for each one of us. 
And God, may um, we continually become a people that are eager to do good. We all are in a process, and we recognize that. Change our hearts. May we yield to you. May we seek to grow as individual followers. May our hearts be eager to do what is good. For Jesus' sake, amen.